a subject that's rarely spoken about in law enforcement, compassion. And, well, it's more prevalent than people realize, he's here to talk about investigating a kidnapping and his new mission in life. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. In the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, we are joined by special guests talking about their experiences, their realities of investigating crimes, plus those who have experienced horrendous trauma, police, first responders, military, and victims of crime share their stories. Hi, I'm John J. Wiley. In addition to being a broadcaster, I'm also a retired police sergeant. Be sure to check out our website, letradio.com, and also like us on Facebook. Search for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. One of the questions I get all the time is how can I show my support for law enforcement? We're all busy. We've got busy lives, but there's something oh so simple you can do with our Facebook page. Search for Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show Facebook page. And when you see a post you agree with that resonates with you, share it, especially episodes of the podcast. To do all that, just search for us on Facebook, look for Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, and be sure to click like. Calling us from Alabama, we have Andy Hughes on the phone. Andy has worked just about every position you can imagine in law enforcement. He's a retired police officer. He's also a sheriff and a police administrator. And he's here to talk about SWAT callouts, where a sniper had to shoot someone, investigating kidnapping, and his new mission in life. Andy, thanks for your service. Number one, thanks for being guest on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. Number two, very much appreciated. You're glad to be with you, John. We're going to talk about something that, that a lot of people, and I'm, I'm baffled as a reason why. We're going to talk about compassion in law enforcement. And it's something that we've been doing since, it, look, when I, when I was a rookie, it was taught in us. Uh, it is not something that is new, but people act like this whole concept of compassion for our, when I say police, that includes deputies, constables, agents, you, you name it, state troopers as well. It's something we all have. It's a human trait. That's correct. I mean, compassion and love for your fellow man is definitely a characteristic that you have to have in order to be an effective law enforcement officer. It certainly is, and it's something we all have. And why is it that people think it's something that doesn't exist, that we're some sort of robotic, we all think the same, we want to lock people up, and even though that's the very small percentage of what we do, why is the general public so surprised when there's stories of compassion in law enforcement? Well, because I think they, they've watched TVs and, and movies and television shows and movies that have conditioned them to believe that cops are just some, you know, a bunch of uh, tough individuals who go out and, and fight people and shoot people and chase people. And uh, that's really a very small part of our job. It's a very small percentage of what we do. You know, as you know, John, uh, law enforcement's about 95% uh, boredom and uh, routine and about 5% sheer terror and excitement. Yeah. So I think people have a have a misconception of what cops actually do on a daily basis. Most of most of the things that we do are for the good of people. One of the things you know, there was a there was a there was a chief that I had one time and he used to say there's only two types of people that we deal with in law enforcement. Bad people and good people who are having a bad day. Right. You know, we're either dealing with thugs and criminals or we're dealing with someone uh, who's, who's got a lost child or their lawnmower's been stolen or they've been in a vehicular crash. One of the things that, and I don't paraphrase, I don't have it in front of me, but several agencies have started putting out 
how many calls of service they have per month, how many arrests they have per month, and how many traffic stops they have. And here's one, for example, I'm going to use Baltimore as an example. It didn't come from them. 123,000 calls for service, 72 arrests, and 1,600 traffic stops. And yet people think we're pulling people over, issuing tickets, and arresting everybody. If you have 130,000 calls for service and there's uh, less than 100 arrests, what's that tell people? You'd think, common sense-wise, it would be obvious. Right. Well, most of those calls for service are mainly what the law enforcement officer is doing is they're conducting an investigation or they're either completing a report, which, you know, will, it's just meant for record keeping purposes or is being forwarded to the criminal investigations division for, for a follow up, you know, on different felonies, especially, you know, so most, most calls are, are about helping people, giving people advice, uh, writing a report for documentation, whether it's for, you know, a crash report for insurance purposes or whatever, or uh, reports where, detectives can follow up and and possibly make an arrest at a later time. I've seen from the responses of people, the comments of certain people, I call them internet trolls, in particular on the law enforcement radio show Facebook page. And no matter how much evidence you put out, photographic evidence of cops doing great things, which they do every day across the United States and across the world too, people will think, well, they're a bunch of stone cold killers. And I want to say to them, so, and I don't engage with people on online. There's an old saying by Mark Twain, never argue with an idiot. They'll just drag you to their level and beat you with years of experience, especially on social media is what I always add in there. So, and I say, do the math. If you have roughly, let's just say 1 million law enforcement officers across the United States. If every law enforcement officer killed one person a month, That'd be 12 million people killed every year by police, and it just does not happen. You know, if you take the number of actual interactions uh, between law enforcement and the general public and the number of, of not only uses of deadly force, but just the use of force, period, it's a very small percentage of incidents where law enforcement officers actually have to use any type of force whatsoever, much less deadly force. Right. Right. And the numbers just don't match up. But, you know, we're not here to try to convince people who don't want to be convinced. And what's the other old saying is certain people are immune to logic. It's like trying to give vaccines to people who are already dead. It's just never not going to make a difference. So what I try to do with this show is provide a platform for people to tell their stories, primarily law enforcement officers, either about investigating crime or trauma they went through. When I say the trauma... A lot of times it's both. And we have a lot of other first responders. We have military. We have victims of crime. Their spouses are survivors. All talking about trauma they went through, often crime-based, but not always, how it impacted them and what they did to build their lives after. And we'll get to your life after. By the way, Andy does a presentation called Bear the Sword, uh, an inspired law enforcement and, and law enforcement leadership, which we'll talk about later on. I want to get back to compassion. It's something that... To be totally honest with you, Andy, I don't even know why we're having this conversation. And yet, it seems to be a foreign language for a lot of people. They just don't get the whole concept. We may look alike, but we are all individuals for every walk of life. Uh, Male, female. When I started policing in 1980, we had male, female, gays, lesbians, Jews, Hindus. We had every walk of life you can imagine. And everybody looked a little bit different, but we wore the same uniform. And yet, people acted as if 
we were a cold, hard, unfeeling group of people. All we did was had our marching orders to go lock people up. You know, the uniform to some people is a representation of authority and power when, in fact, it's not really. Uh, you know, you if you don't have compassion and you don't have a love for your fellow man, you will never be fully effective as a law enforcement officer. You're going to have a very uh, a career that's very unrewarding. If you if you say it is. Uh, it's just not going to be a very good career. The, the glamour and the luster and the excitement will soon wear off of the, the law enforcement career. And if you don't have that love and compassion for people, then it's just not going to be a very good time for you for for a career anyway. And how long have you been uh, retired from law enforcement? How long have you been out of it? I've been retired for seven and a half years now. So you're still the rookie. I got retired in 1992. <laughs> but then again, yeah. I was hurt and retired young. And uh, so I was 33 when I was retired. And people think, man, you got it made in the shade. No, <laughs> it, it wasn't like that. And financially, we couldn't afford to live. We could barely afford to live on what I made full time and extra duty, you name it. We are talking with Andy Hughes, retired police officer. He was also a sheriff and a police administrator. He's here to talk about compassion in law enforcement, plus investigating a kidnapping and more. Remember when news was free? Be sure to check out the Newsbreak app. It's free. And be sure to follow the Law Enforcement Talk radio show and podcast on the Newsbreak app. Newsbreak is your number one local news app for current events, free live news for you and your community. Download the Newsbreak app today for free and be sure to follow the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and Podcast on the Newsbreak app. That's the free Newsbreak app. Be sure to look for and follow the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and Podcast. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Get access to free podcast versions of the show and more on Facebook. Do a search for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and be sure to click like. Return to conversation with Andy Hughes, retired police officer. He was also a sheriff, a police administrator, and he's been retired from law enforcement about seven and a half years now. And he is he also does a presentation, Bear the Sword presentation to inspire law enforcement and law enforcement leaders. Andy, part of your job was as a, a police administrator, you had a call as a SWAT call out and it got a little bit dicey, didn't it? Yes, back in uh, back in 2014, uh, whenever I was sheriff here in Houston County, Alabama, uh, we had a situation where um, a man had been involved in a domestic violence incident the, the night previously. Uh, deputies had obtained a warrant for him for domestic violence, and it went back down to his residence the next day about mid-morning. I'm going to try to arrest him on the warrant. Well, he wasn't at home, and deputies left, and as they left a little piece up the road they met this guy in the road and they turned around went back chased him back to his to his trailer and uh he jumped up on the porch and said hey i'm gonna kill y'all you know get out of here basically so he went inside the trailer we knew he had long guns this was an individual that was familiar to us and we knew he had long guns in the trailer so i heard all this chatter going on the radio i, I told my deputies i said let's just set up a perimeter we're gonna get SWAT to come out so we got our SWAT team in place uh, had a sniper team uh, across the road, and um, we set up a command post at a church about a mile and a half away. 
we negotiated with this young man for approximately four and a half hours. We tried everything we could do to try to get him to come out and give himself up peacefully. And uh, he just he just wasn't being very logical at all whatsoever, making no sense. He didn't want to do anything that we were asking him to do. Even had some of his friends were requesting to go to the trailer, and, and he were telling us, it's like, hey, listen, we can get him out. And I said, no, we currently don't have a hostage situation, so we're not going to create one either. So we talked to this guy, like I said, for about four and a half hours or so, and he never would come out. Well, he wanted to surrender to this one particular deputy. And I told him, I said, that's fine. We'll let you surrender to him, but you need to come out, come out your front porch, walk halfway toward the road in your front yard, lay prone out in the yard, and I'll let this particular deputy come arrest you. And he said, no. He said, I want him to come in here to the trailer and get me. I said, well, no, well, that's not going to happen. Well, we had previously let, let him talk to his mother and uh, a couple other family members. Since we did not have a hostage situation. It was a barricade situation only. And uh, they were there at the fellowship hall at the church where we had set up a command post. Well, our, gas, our SWAT team had actually set up a gas plant. They were going to deploy some gas in the trailer. We didn't want to get dark. So uh, they were going to deploy some gas into the trailer to try to get him, get him out. And uh, my chief deputy looks at me, and he, he nods his head like, come outside. So I'm headed toward the door. And uh, this individual's mother sees me headed toward the door from across the church fellowship hall. And she comes over to me and says, Sheriff Hughes, she said, please don't hurt my son. I said, we don't want to hurt him. We just want to get him out. Let's you know, get him out. Let's get him to jail. Let's get him the court-ordered uh, treatment program that he needs to get into so that we can get him some help. And she said, y'all, please don't kill my son. Please don't kill him. Please don't hurt him. You're just pleading with me. And I said, we're not going to do that. We don't want to hurt him. We just want to get him into custody. So anyway, I headed on out the door. And as I got outside the door, my chief deputy says, he's dead. He's shot in the head. He said, I don't know if we shot him or he shot himself or what yet. So after I get in my Tahoe and I go down to the to the trailer. And once I get to the get down to the scene, my CID lieutenant says, well, you know, the, the guy's over here. And I said, well, the heck with him right now. I said, where's my sniper? Because I found out that on approach, the team was going to deploy some gas in the trailer and as they approached, this individual stepped down on the front porch with a lever-action high-powered rifle and pointed it at the SWAT team, which was approaching the trailer. And uh, our sniper had to take a shot from 68 yards and uh, eliminate the threat and kill this young man. Well, they directed me where my sniper was at, and that's where I went first. Went and put my hands on his shoulder, looked him in the eye, and told him, I said, listen, boy, you did the right thing. You did what you had to do. You protected your teammates from a threat. I said, you did the right thing. This was the right call. You know, I wanted to reinforce to him that he had done the right thing. Right. This this young deputy had been out of, he graduated from FBI sniper school a week and a half before this incident. You know, his, his logbook's going to look a little different than, than his classmates there. I wanted to reinforce to him that he had done the right thing. So I, you know, I had to show compassion to that deputy and make sure that he was okay. And, uh, you know, since he had just taken a human life, which is not an easy thing to do, as it shouldn't be. So then I go up and take a look at the guy, you know. Then I have to go back to the church fellowship hall. So I go back, and as I'm pulling up and getting out of my vehicle, the mother comes out, and she knows something's going on. There's some activity, but she doesn't know exactly what's happened yet. 
So as I'm walking toward the doors of the church fellowship hall, she comes out and she says, Sheriff Hughes, Sheriff Hughes, what's, what, what's going on? I said, just come, come back inside here a minute. And I sat down with her, knee to knee, holding her hands, and I had to tell her, ma'am, your son is dead. We had to shoot him. He pointed a rifle at deputies as they were attempting to approach the trailer. Now, this is a woman that just begged me for us not to kill her son, not to hurt her son, and I had assured her that we didn't wish to do that, and we weren't going to do that. What I didn't know was that he was already dead. Right. I tell you, I've, I've done quite known death that. notifications through my career, but uh, that's got to be the very hardest one that I've ever had to deliver. Well, one of the things that, and we'll talk about the death notifications in, a, in just a moment. One of the things that it took me a really long time to come to grips with, and, and I, I don't, to be honest, Andy, I don't know how much this is institutionalized, learned behavior, whatever. But I'm not Superman, and I'm not God. And you know what? We can't make other people do the right things. We don't have that kind of power. And terms that are used in policing nowadays, uh, de-escalation. We did that all the time before it was a thing. Community policing, we did that in in the early 80s before it was called that. And I'm sure you went through all that as well. But when it comes to use of deadly force, I, I, I can tell you countless snipers have never fired a shot except at the range. And, and that's the reality of their job. But that wasn't a reality for your officer that day. Right. You know, mo- most of a sniper's job is actually doing reconnaissance, you know, and giving information to the tactical team, to the tactical command staff, and, and things like that. It's, right. You what know, they see going on. never take a shot. Yeah. it's Look, people don't realize, because of Hollywood, a lot of what the sniper right. does is he sees through the sights people moving around, and he relays that information, and he's there as a backup for the worst-case scenario, and everything is done to make sure that that is not needed. Am, am I missing something? No, no, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, it's very, very few times that a law enforcement sniper actually has to take a shot because, you know, different than a military sniper, which is actually an offensive sniper, a law enforcement sniper is more of a defensive mechanism. Yeah, and they are definitely, all law enforcement is very reactionary, and and we'll talk more about that in a moment. When we return, we're going to wrap up the conversation with Andy Hughes about this incident and a SWAT call out where one of his snipers had to shoot and kill a man and how he handled that. And then we're going to talk about investigating kidnapping and his new mission in life. You can find us on Facebook. Just search for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and be sure to click like. This is Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Whether you're an aspiring podcaster, new or published author, speaker, content creator, visionary, or a dreamer crafting your message, now is your moment to shine. At CreativeCon 2024, you'll discover how to position yourself as an industry leader and leverage podcasting, publishing, production, and promotions to maximize your impact. For those seeking purpose, we'll ignite your storytelling passions and guide you to a more fulfilling path. To secure your tickets for this one-of-a-kind live event taking place at Chicago's Metropolis Performing Arts Center on February 17th and 18th, visit creativecon.com. That's C-R-E, the number 8, T-I-V-E-C-O-N.com. Get your tickets today. The future is yours. Speak it. Write it. 
Live it. Return our conversation with Andy Hughes, contacting us from Alabama. He is a retired police officer, a sheriff, and he's also a police administrator. He has a new mission in life. He does a presentation for law enforcement officers and police leadership called Bear the Sword. Before we went to break, Andy, we're talking about this situation when you were sheriff. Was it uh, Houston County, Alabama? That's correct. And you had a SWAT call out, and one of your snipers had to shoot and kill a man, and you just got done telling the the mother of the suspect that, look, we're not here to hurt him. We're going to get him help. And then, unbeknownst to you, he'd already been shot and killed. And I appreciate you saying something to that that sniper because so many, and I'm using this term broadly, police administrators don't do that. Uh, they don't take the time to have a conversation with the person and let them know they look. We got to go through the investigation. We got to do this. We got to do that. But you did the right thing. So thank you for doing that. It's very much appreciated. Yeah. Well, the suspect was deceased. There was nothing I could do to do for him anymore. We tried to talk him out and uh, reach a peaceful resolution, and, and uh, it didn't didn't turn out that way. But you know, I, I had a duty to go and reassure that sniper that he had done the right thing. You know, taking a human life is something that. You know, 99.9% of law enforcement officers never have to do. Right. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a terrible thing to have to do, uh, but sometimes it is necessary, and I wanted to make sure that my deputy knew that he had done the right thing, you know. It's a, it's a horrible thing, and in you know, my career, I went through four shootings in a little more than 10 years, and the first two, I never mm-hmm. fired a shot back. And, and fortunately, everybody lived, uh, which is, is was God's call, not my call. Right. So I want to go to something. You you returned to the church hall, the fellowship hall, and you're talking to mother, and you go back inside, and you have to do death notification that her son was killed. Listen, they tried training us in everything in the academy and yearly in-service. Death notifications is one of them. I remember being 22, knocking on someone's door at 3 o'clock in the morning because their son, who was 21 or 23, something like that, a little bit older than me, was killed in a car accident in Ohio. And, and here I'm thinking, I got it going on, and I had no idea. And we never knew how they're going to respond. Sometimes it was, thanks for letting me know. Sometimes it was bawling and screaming. Sometimes they lash out at you. Uh, they physically assault you. All those sorts of things. What was going through your mind when you had to tell the mother of the son that uh, he was dead? You know, John, I've, I've done quite a few death notifications, uh, all of them in person previously. But like you said, I had just reassured this mother that we did not want to kill her son. We did not want to harm her son. That we just wanted to get him the help we needed. And pretty much told her, you know, we we, we weren't going to we weren't going to do anything. We weren't going to use force. And uh, but unbeknownst to me, he had forced her hand, and the sniper had to actually take a shot. And uh, so you know, I had just reassured this lady of all this, and then I had to go back. You know, basically, I was like. You know, going back on my word to her that we were not going to harm him. You know, it's hard enough to do a death notification under the best of circumstances if there is such a thing. But there's no easy to way easy way to do a death notification. They can teach you all the techniques, techniques, procedures, whatever to deliver a death notification. But there's really no easy way to do it. You've just got you've got to just spit it out and say what you got to say. You can't you can't dance around or beat around the bush. You got to come out and say it. So you know, I asked her to sit down, and like I said, I was sitting there knee to knee with her, right in front of her. I held both of her hands 
and I had tears in my eyes, you know, because I, I felt terrible for this lady who had just lost her son. No matter what he had done, no matter what kind of criminal he was or whatever, this was her child. She had given birth to this individual and had tried to do the best that she could to raise him during his life. And then I had to deliver this message to her under these uh, particularly difficult set of circumstances and I, I just I, I cried with her you know yeah. and uh, that's just part of having compassion you've got to have empathy you've got to be able to put yourself in other people's place and say you know how would I want someone to treat me if I was on the other side well that, that brings up a whole different conversation and I, I was never a homicide detective but when we did have homicides we felt every one of us to a, a person felt as if we're there to speak for the victim um, and right. we had an old saying, I, I still hold true to this, as long as that person is breathing in and out, there's hope for them, whether they be a drug addict, whether they're alcoholic, whether they're a career criminal, violent criminal, whatever it might be, they can reform and change their lives. It's not my call. However, when they die, it's over. There's nothing can be done. Yeah, you're exactly right there. But, you know, everybody, every individual, no matter what they've done, uh, especially a murder victim, but that murder victim and their family deserve justice. And that's our job is to deliver justice. That's that's true. And uh, man, uh, we could talk for hours about justice and really what's the old saying you hear all the time that um, justice was served or uh, they were able to close a chapter, close the door in that chapter of life and, and move on. No, it, it doesn't really work like that. It, it's for me, and I'm using an analogy. My father died of cancer 30-some-odd years ago. And I tell people, time doesn't heal all wounds. You just get used to it. That's all. Right. And I, I sometimes yeah, think right. that's the, the best we can do. Because there really is no justice. And we always say this all the time. There is no justice. There's just us. Right. <laughs> exactly. And we you do know, the best we could. Yeah. And some, sometimes there's, there's no justice or no closure for for the, the law enforcement officers to work some of these cases because they carry that burden with them for the rest of their career and the rest of their life also. They do. And they're, to, to a man or woman, they're haunted by the cases they couldn't solve. I, I want to go into a different case. I look back at my career in Baltimore and I handled just about everything you could handle with the exception of a kidnapping. And I think uh, the other one was like the terror activity. We didn't have that back then. You were involved right. in a kidnapping case. Can, what can you tell us about that? Back in 1993, I was working in the uh, Vice Intelligence Division of the Bethlehem Police Department. And uh, a group of uh, officers, we were out playing softball one night at a local park and a local league. And uh, our, our lieutenant over Vice Intelligence Division, he just walks onto the field. The umpire's like, hey, get off the field. He calls all of us guys over to the foul line. He says, listen, go home, take a shower, pack you a bag. Tell your family you don't know when you'll be home. Meet me at the PD. We're like, what's going on? He's like, just meet me at the PD. So we all go home, grab a shower, get ready, get our stuff together. We get back. And uh, once we arrived at the PD, we get there, and there's there's FBI agents from all over the southeastern United States there. And come to find out, we had had a bank president's wife that was kidnapped for ransom, a true ransom kidnapping. Uh, she was uh, had been to the grocery store, had just pulled up at their house and was fixing to get her groceries out, and uh, two men kidnapped her, put her in the trunk of a car, and they had they had drove all over South Alabama with this lady in the trunk of a car. 
Well, we had, like I said, a bunch of FBI personnel there, a bunch of uh, you know, FBI technology that had brought in, <laughs> technology as it was in 1993. And uh, so we started getting a bunch of calls, and there was a whole bunch of background investigation going on, on you know, some bank employees and people like that who may have had a motive. We were trying to establish you know, who the suspects actually were and maybe you know what the motive was at the time. Well, anyway, make a long story short, uh, they had teamed each of us vice intelligence officers up that had, you know, really cool cars, undercover cars. Uh, had teamed all of us up with uh, individual FBI agents. Well, these calls were coming in for for the ransom, and FBI was pinpointing the calls. And we'd get a call and come in. They said, we're getting a call, come in. It's uh, coming from the uh, truck stop on I-65 near Greenville, Alabama, which is a pretty good piece away from, from Dothan here. And uh, a little while later, you know, we're getting a call. It's coming in from here once they pinpointed the call. We're going to take a short break. We're talking with Andy Hughes. When we return to our conversation. We're going to talk more about this kidnapping incident. There's only one official Facebook page for the show. Do a search on Facebook for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. And be sure to click like. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Follow the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and Podcast on the Newsbreak app. It's free. And get the latest crime and law enforcement news on the Newsbreak app. It's simple, easy, and free. Just download the Newsbreak app. Then search for and follow the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and Podcast on the Newsbreak app. Return our conversation with Andy Hughes. He's a retired police officer, also a sheriff and a police administrator from Alabama. And he also does a presentation called Bear the Sword, which is inspiring law enforcement officers and leadership. Uh, for the break, Andy, on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, we were talking about this kidnapping. And first of all, real deal, you said kidnappings where they have ransoms are very rare. Most of what we encounter is what abductions, people snatched off the street for whatever reason. Right. But you, you were saying that you're using technology at the time, and they were tracking phone calls in different areas across the state. Right. The uh, the individuals were making calls from different pay phones around the southern part of Alabama. Well, we worked on this case. This, this case progressed on about 48, 50 hours. Anyway, uh, some of the calls started coming in. They were back in the Dothan area, and... Uh, one of the calls came in and said, hey, they're, they're at a pay phone at the King at U.S. 431 North in Ross Clark Circle. We got some officers over there. They weren't there. You know, car was gone. The next call that came in said, they're at a pay phone. They're at a gas station on U.S. Highway 231 across from Troy State University campus in Dothan. Well, guess where me and my FBI guys at? We're right there. I look over the guys on the payphone. So we had a we had an FBI plane up with a infrared capability. We had a thirty two car surveillance team. So we got this guy. Ended up, long story short, ended up making a ransom drop about fifteen twenty miles north of Dothan, and then we followed the guy with the money to Clanton, Alabama, which is between Montgomery and Birmingham. <laughs> pretty pretty long uh, surveillance trip there. And uh, then we got word that uh, the victim in the kidnapping had been kicked out of the car uh, down near Montgomery, and she had made it up to a house and, and made a made a phone call to her husband, let her know that he was okay. But uh, very very fortunate to get this lady back safely and uh, get two bad guys in custody. And 
just a just a real good case, a lot of great experience. Uh, not a not a case that a lot of law enforcement officers get to be in, no. involved with. And uh, we we were and we had a, man, we had a great team between our agency and and the uh, the FBI and got this lady back safely. And it's just a just a, a great feeling to uh, to be able to be a part of that case. And I'm no expert when it comes to kidnappings, but quite often the victims are, are recovered and they're killed. It's, it's not often they're recovered alive. Right, that's correct. That's that's why we were so happy to happy to get her back. But you know, that's a story of commitment. I talk about commitment. You know, in law enforcement, that you know, we can, we couldn't just pack up and go home. We're tired, or you know, my wife's got something ready or whatever. I mean, we had to get this lady back and get her back safely, which which we did accomplish. About how many hours did it take from start to finish? Man, it was like 48, 50 hours, somewhere along in there, straight, pretty much, with you know, no sleep and very little food, and that we were we were working on this case. So I and I, I can't go into details, but when I worked plain clothes narcotics, that was I specialized in surveillance, and sometimes mm-hmm. my wife was like, hey, you can be home normal time, yeah, I think so, and <laughs> not come home for two days. Uh, and right. she knew at the time what it was about. The the only people I knew who had it rougher were the homicide detectives because they got a call and they were working it until they couldn't work it anymore. Yeah. yeah when, when I worked narcotics, I always kept a bag packed with some uh, some extra snacks and stuff, extra, you know, tooth, toothbrush and uh Wait a second. You had a toothbrush. You had a toothbrush and snacks in your in your car? Yeah. Why yeah, did I, I think it, of that? Given it back, which I I learned from previous experience. You know what I'm saying? That was one of those lessons learned. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, it was the old timers that taught, taught us those lessons. And this is something right, I can exactly. say. Uh, you and he, he really resonates. And you said he had about thirty vehicles in his surveillance team, and we would do yeah. these complex surveillances. Sometimes we're in front of the car, and then you turn off, right. and then someone pulling behind, and it was always different ones. But the one vehicle that we could follow anybody anywhere in, and you don't see them anymore, were yellow cabs back in the day. Yeah, <laughs> right. And right. then the old yellow construction trucks, but that that was. The, the cabs worked e- even better because people were used to seeing them. Well, by the Especially, way... Uh, yeah, in an urban setting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in, in a country setting? No. That'd be a severe yeah. red flag. I want to thank uh, your crew for doing that. Uh, th- did they find any connection between any employees and the kidnappers? No. No, there's no, no connection between any employees and, the, and the, the kidnappers. And I say that because one of the first things we do as police is... Anytime there's a crime of violence, I use homicide as an example, we, we work our way out. So you start with the, the person that's closest to them, the person who last right. saw them. So the husband, co-workers, all that sorts of stuff, and you and you rule them out with the evidence. You don't go with hunches, you go with evidence. If you have a hunch, that's great. But if the evidence doesn't support it, you gotta go in a different direction. That's right. That, that, that's just the way it is. So and I, I say it all the time when people say, well, they just focused on the ex-boyfriend because that's all they cared about. And I'm like, I don't think it worked like that. At least it didn't for us. That's right. Not if you're going to do it right. That's correct. No. So now you have uh, retired from a, a life of policing from virtually every job you can have, from a police officer to a sheriff to police administration uh, you've done it all, seen it all, and now you are doing a, a presentation called Bear the Sword. Tell us about that. 
You know, John, after I retired, uh, you know, I'd, I'd been everything. I'm a second-generation cop. I'd been everything from a dispatcher to a jailer, a deputy, a police officer, sheriff, and then uh, the executive at the state level. And uh, after I retired, I just really felt like I had no purpose anymore. Uh, there's no meaning in life, no crimes to respond to, no cops to supervise or any of those kind of things. And, and uh, you know, God just kind of laid it upon my heart that my new mission in life was to inspire future generations of law enforcement officers, law enforcement leadership, and supporters of law enforcement. So I have a presentation. Uh, I, I was in Indiana the week before last uh, doing it at a at law enforcement event. I was in Birmingham, Alabama last week. And uh, i got some other bookings coming up in the future. But uh, I do a presentation titled Bear the Sword. And uh, it's about an hour-long presentation. And that's what it's designed to do is to, to uh, inspire future generations of cops. And it, because if we don't inspire future generations, I don't know where they're going to come from. And I don't believe we can continue to recruit blindly. And one of the worst things we can do as cops and retired cops is, is say, I wouldn't encourage anybody to get into law enforcement as a profession today. If we don't encourage it, we don't inspire the right people, then where are the cops going to come from in the future? You know, without without law enforcement in this nation, our, our great nation will definitely fall. It will. And by the way, the law enforcement officers are usually the first on scene for your heart attacks and things like that because they're mobile. And, and unlike your fire department, they're, they're there. They're already in the neighborhood. And I always right. say this selfishly. Andy, if I have to call the police because we have a health emergency, just say a visitor falls ill, I want the best of the best to show up, and I want them to be on their A game. I don't want second stringers. Right, exactly. I think I think law enforcement administrators throughout the nation right now, especially since recruitment retention is such an issue, that they're filling empty slots just to be filling those slots. We need to make sure that we're hiring the right caliber of law enforcement officer. And there's there's four characteristics that I think are absolutely necessary to be an effective law enforcement officer. And I, I go through all these characteristics during my presentation, among a lot of other things. But, uh, you know, I just want to remain relevant. Uh, I'll always be a cop. I'll be a cop to the day that I die. And uh, I just want to make sure that I'm fulfilling my commitment to the community because I believe that our oath never expires, even in retirement. It doesn't. And uh, look, I've been uh, where I backed up police that were in, in fights. My wife is never surprised. Uh, and I, <laughs> those things, they're, they're part of my DNA. And I always jokingly right. say this, you know, I look like a cop I, and apparently I act like a cop, even though I've been retired for a long time. And I could be the 85 year old guy pushing this, uh, the, the cart down the old folks home and people go, shh, there's five zero. Right. <laughs> and I, I, I'm not yeah. embarrassed by any of it um, because no. I know what they, I know what comes with the territory. What right. I don't do anymore is I don't try to convince the haters anymore uh, that no, they're no, wrong. No. But you know what? You made a great point. And, and I'm not saying this was the case, but uh, departments like Memphis, there's certainly arguments being made that they're bringing in people that are not qualified to do the job. And there is a tremendous price to be paid if we don't have the best of the best. And the best are quite often are people who want to do this. And then we have a few that come in for different reasons and then fall in love with the job. Before we close, uh, you have some social media platforms where people can contact you. Am I correct? Right. That's correct. Uh, I'm on uh, Facebook. It's just Andy Hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, it's uh, Andy R. Hughes. And then on uh Instagram, I'm uh, A Hughes two ninety seven. 
on Instagram. I try to stay pretty active and put out a lot of law enforcement related stuff, you know, and, and back to what you were just saying, John, you know, I've seen a lot of cops come and I've seen a lot of cops go and I've seen a lot of cops stay, yeah. but you can always tell the ones that were called. That's right. That and not. it is a calling. Andy, thanks so much for your service and thanks for being guest on the show. Very much appreciated. Thank you, John. You can find us on Facebook. Look for and like the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show Facebook page. I'd like to thank our guests for coming on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. The Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show is a nationally syndicated weekly radio show broadcast on numerous AM and FM radio stations across the country. We're always adding more affiliate stations. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, which is always free, please do me a favor and tell a friend or two or three. I'll be back in just a few days with another episode of the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and Podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. See ya.